Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound On Sight, and I'm going to go ahead and warn listeners ahead of time. Uh, amongst the various things that plague my recording today, there are very loud birds. So that's contextually relevant, but also kind of annoying, so I apologize for that. Joining me, as always, is TV editor at Sound On Sight, Kate Kolzik. Hello, Kate. Of all the 23 shows that have been canceled this week, which do you think, if Hannibal had killed them, would make the most elaborate meal? Hmm. That's, huh. <laughs> that is a good question. See, the, the, the thing is that the shows I feel would make the best meal, the show I feel would make the best meal would have to be Blacklist, because, of course, James Spader is a ham, just has become one at this point, which is perfect for the show, but that show didn't get canceled. So I'm torn. I'm going to have to think on that. The one that uh, is go- is going to fe- is is getting the the biggest reaction where people are really feasting together in their in their sorrow would of course be Community, but uh I I'll 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 ponder and I will respond to this once I've had a little time on the the next Televerse. The the use of ham is perfect, and I accept that as an answer, even though the blacklist has not been canceled, so that's fine. This week we're <laughs> going to be talking about uh, Season 2, Episode 11, Ko no Mono. Uh, joining us, co-host of Battleship Retention, and more than one lesson is Tyler Smith. Hello, Tyler, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. All right, let's get right to the nitty-gritty. So I wanted to start by talking about teacups. And Hannibal talks in this episode about it and how he is not satisfied when his teacups don't gather themselves up again. He asks, well, should the universe contract? Should time reverse and teacups come together? Uh, Tyler, I wanted to ask, or I wanted to start by asking you, do you think wanting to reverse time is something that most people can relate to? And do you think most of these characters have that desire? Uh, yes, I think so, and it's interesting, uh, the, the whole teacup thing, I feel like we got a lot of what goes on inside Hannibal Lecter in this episode, more so maybe than any other episode. We find out about his sister, which then explains why he has a certain degree of contempt for Mason Verger, uh, but then also that teacup thing is is fascinating. Like, wanting, like, breaking things with the very unreasonable hope that they will go back together. It is, it's a delightful little metaphor for what he does with human beings. Like he is not unlike, um, it's a weird comparison to make, but, uh, in the M night Shyamalan film unbreakable, you have a villain who basically murders hundreds of people because he's looking for that one that is indeed to go with the title unbreakable. And in this, you, you almost get the impression that, Hannibal manipulates people, finds their weaknesses, exploits them because he's looking for the one that can fall and then actually legitimately get back up again as though nothing had ever happened. Like he's looking for something to restore his faith in humanity and it hasn't happened yet. And so, but he keeps doing it. Like it's, it's almost, he's almost revealed to be uh, almost an idealist or an optimist uh, always giving people another chance, of course, in the worst way possible. But yeah, sorry, that's not really a, a, an answer to your question. I do think that the characters in this show and people in general, I know that I myself, there are times when I've, even even if it's just like, man, I wish I had that 10 seconds back, where I say something, I'm like, mm, that is going to, that one's going to haunt me for a while. And just wishing you could do a little rewind button. Uh, I remember in the movie Galaxy Quest, there's this amazing device, and what it does is it, it takes you back in time 13 seconds. And everyone at the time said, well, what good does that do? And any of us know 13 seconds can be the difference between a good relationship and a bad relationship and sometimes even life and death. So, like, that aspect of this episode is what resonated with me and will probably continue to for the rest of the of the series. The fact that there was just an Omega-13 reference on the Hannibal podcast, just, <laughs> that's it. Like, we've achieved full potential. I'm so happy right now. We can stop right now, because that was yeah. wonderful. Thank you, listeners, <laughs> for tuning in. You know, we might be back next year. Um, Kate, <laughs> there's there's several people in this episode, I think, that you could probably make a case that they also would like to see time reversed. And th- again, 
it's not nece- it's not necessarily something that's particular to Hannibal. Um, in one of the most recent episodes of Mad Men, we saw uh, Bobby Draper say, "You know, I wish it was yesterday." There's this is a running theme, I think, in a lot of fiction. Uh, how do you think it applies here? Because we've definitely talked about how Fuller likes to toy with time in this series. Well, I, I, that's you said. There's many characters. Is there a single character who wouldn't? At this point, everybody, not only have they lost Beverly, but even the more peripheral characters, I mean, obviously Bella is dying of cancer, and I mean, every, nobody is in a good place in this show right now, uh, so so I think that, you know, that maybe is a little bit of an, uh, an understatement, but yeah, this notion of regret and uh, the finality of death, which is, of course, something that surrounds these people's lives, either by choice or, you know, by... Uh, it being their passion, like our serial killers that we see every week, or their compulsion, more accurately, or by it uh, being their job, which, you know, our heroes. And so so I, that's sort of where I take that notion of uh, regret and wanting to get that moment back. When we talk about the teacup, I thought it was a wonderful, well, very well put, uh, Tyler. The other thing with that is that it almost felt, to me, I was associating Hannibal's uh dropping of the teacup with an almost compulsive act like he can't help himself from from dropping he knows what's going to happen but he still has to kind of do it over and over again and and as soon as he does he regrets it but he knows he's going to do it again and uh that element that almost childlike element of not being willing to to change or not able to change that mode of behavior I thought was interesting in an episode so filled with fathers and sons and you know parenting and you know all of that so so that element I thought I was seeing in there as well but when we get to regret and wanting to go to go back I mean our main character how much does he just wish he had never you know that that Hannibal had never darkened his door that Jack had never darkened his door yeah, regret also, uh, just looking at that, the Jack relationship, I'm sure that, that Crawford relates to that as well. And then there are many times where he's even vocalized it that, you know, going to Will in the first place has obviously led them to where they're at now. And it's it's not the best of situations, although they are on the verge of catching a serial killer, which I guess is good. Well, and that it just occurred to me, would Will undo that if he could? Would he give up the knowledge of who Hannibal was and the hope to catch him if it meant that Beverly would be alive and he would be in such a better place? What do you guys think? I I don't, because because of how hyper-empathetic Will is. I mean, that's how we were introduced to him. And so while obviously Hannibal has disrupted the status quo of his life and has brought horror and nightmares and everything related to Abigail Hobbs, which will plague him for the rest of his life. Um, It's also opened up who Hannibal is to him, and thus he is able to at least attempt to help all of the victims of Hannibal Lecter, which I think is something that he would not go back and give up because of how empathetic he is as a character. What do you think, Tyler? Well, I think there's the... the the fact of yes, his own life is in many ways ruined by being involved. But I think he realizes it's entirely possible that if I had not gotten involved, no one would be suspicious of Hannibal and he could just keep doing this and ruining other people's lives. And so there is definitely a a big element of self-sacrifice to Will Graham in that he feels like, all right, if I just take all of this on myself, then at least it's off of other people uh, to a certain extent, he's lessening their burden. And so while I think he, you know, he regrets it the way anybody would regret that sort of thing. But I think he looks at what the alternative would be and said and says, this is this is better than that. That ties in with his actions since Beverly of I mean, we obviously we find out new information at the end of this episode. But we were talking about the podcast last week, his decision to to not incorporate anyone else into his his schemes or his his attempted uh manipulation of the situation or his growing relationship with Hannibal to not try to convince anyone else and that ties in directly Tyler with what you just said of just taking it on himself because then at least he's trying to contain the damage yeah 
Kate, you mentioned earlier the idea of fatherhood or parenthood being a child's and a parent's. And this was another big question that I wanted to, to bring to this podcast because it's all over this episode. You know, we see three characters weep here. We get the child Franklin weeping for his absent parents when uh, when Mason's talking with him. Uh, Will weeps for Abigail, who was certainly a surrogate daughter to him and to, to Hannibal and Alana to some extent. And we also get Margot weeping for the loss of her unborn child and probably by extension, or definitely by extension, the, the chance to distance herself from Mason. Do you think Brian Fuller explores these failed parent-child relationships for any reason in particular, Kate? Well, I think as we've been following Hannibal's journey with Will over the course of the series, but specifically this season when he's... The first season, it felt more like he was kind of toying with him or testing him out or trying to, you know, trying to have a friend. Whereas this season, he feels more actively to be shaping him. And I guess the end of last season started to see that as well. But uh, but this feels very much, you know, he's taken a mentorship of Will and we get the very, uh, you know, the very specific sort of parenting or fatherly kind of uh, tone this week, as well as, you know, when he's talked about, you know, uh, t- speaking through the walls of the the chrysalis or whatever, um, you know, back uh, was that last week or the, or the week before. Um, so, so I think it was sort of inevitable for it to come up with this conversation when you have Hannibal, especially once they introduce Randall and and this this pattern of him of shaping his patients into being uh, exploring their darkest impulses and becoming killers. Then it only makes sense that they're going to have to go to a you know, creation sort of place, if uh, parenting, a uh, nature nurture, any any of these different elements. So I guess it just sort of felt inevitable, and I thought they handled it well here. It, it fits in with that theme of regret and wanting to go back and do things differently, because I'm sure a number of people, I mean, I don't have any children, but, you know, it's something that I've been thinking about as I get older. And I'm sure any number of people have thought about, okay, well, when I have kids, I'm going to do things differently than my parents did. And, you know, I've made a number of mistakes and I can try to, and I've tried, and I've tried to learn from those mistakes and I can try to teach what I have learned to somebody else so that they won't make these same mistakes. It's almost as though every time we have a child or, or we keep the, the next generation going, I mean, there's a, from an from an economic standpoint, people often say that their goal is to uh, is for their children to be better off than they were, and so and that means that usually means financially and economically, but it can also mean emotionally, psychologically, and that sort of thing. And so each generation is like one step, in theory, one step tw- more towards uh, one step closer to perfection. And so you know, it's like oh, I've I've made a bunch of mistakes, but my child, if my child manages to avoid those mistakes, then at least my mistakes have not been in vain. And it's, it's a way to try to, to try to combat that, that regret and turn your regret into an active, positive thing. And so, of course, we see just the, the sheer amount of hope that Margot has at the idea of having a kid, which will provide her escape, but also the next generation of vergers can be less screwed up than this one. And then that is torn away from her. And of course we do get a wonderful bit of symbolism when we see baby chickens or baby birds. I don't remember what they were, but like they are literally consumed. They're dead and consumed. These should be like very cute, alive, you know, the, the symbol of promise. And instead they've been killed and they're, they're being eaten all in one bite by these psychopaths. And so it is interesting that in the same episode that I that I mentioned Hannibal showing a certain degree of, I think, idealism and hope, there's also just a constant extinguishing of that uh, when it comes to a certain type of hope. What you just said, Tyler, about these ideas of parenting relating to regret, I think, is something that I definitely agree with. And it was the the only conclusion, the only logical one that I could come to when I was writing my review of this episode was that these are two huge themes, I think, this time reversal or regret plus 
how these characters are being portrayed as parents, um, whereas they've not been necessarily viewed through that lens much in this series so far. And that makes sense. And you also kind of uh, addressed a subsequent question that I wanted to ask about that, which I'm not particularly sure about with regards to Will, but in terms of Margot and Will, do they actually want to be a parent? Like you said with Margot, it comes down to not just that. Certainly, if all she wanted to do was to be a mother, there's always the option to adopt. But obviously, the potential for a, a biological uh, son, heir, means that she can get out from under Mason's influence. And that means something optimistic going for the Verger family uh, forward. Well, and also what's interesting is even though we see Margot as a type of victim, certainly compared to Mason, I mean, she's she's seen as a victim. But when it, when it comes right down to it, it's not that she wants to escape. She still wants to escape and get what she feels like she deserves, which is she still wants in on the verger fortune. And the only way to do that is for her to have a kid. Now, she could get away anytime she wants if she's willing to start over again, but she's not. And so I don't think that necessarily makes her selfish. I mean, she deserves some of that money as well, and she's just not going to get it. But like... I don't know. I it's one of the things that I like is that there are there's very seldom any just pure victims uh in this show. Everybody that sometimes they have a certain degree of complicity in their own in their own victimization. Certainly, and I think that as Kay mentioned earlier, Bella was another character who would fall into that category where we can absolutely sympathize with her situation, but mm -hmm. at the same time we can question her decision to to kill herself um without consulting her husband about that not that that needs to happen not that that's a prerequisite or that she has an obligation there but it complicates things and so it doesn't just make any one character completely sympathetic and i think what you're saying with relation to margot absolutely falls in line with that i also wonder if will honestly wants to be a father uh, are there certain things that he wants to atone for do you, does he think that he can even does he have the capacity to raise a kid's based on who he is and what he has gone through. Uh, we saw him teaching Abigail to fish in one of his dreams earlier this season. Um, but what, what do you think prompts that reaction uh, against Mason at the end there, Kate? Well, I think there are many things. The straight, I think we can be a little straightforward on that, which is he brutalized another person and his sister. He, I think That to me is, it's more about that than... I thought for a day I might be a father and now I'm not and I'm angry about I think he's was more complete I think it's more just this horrible, horrific thing that he did to to Margot. I mean, anyone, but then specifically Will doesn't have friends. <laughs> he barely has acquaintances and uh He's and got dogs. He's got dogs instead. Uh and so I mean I, I would say that Margot was close to a friend for him. Uh, as close as he seems to get outside of maybe uh, Jack, Jack and before all this went down, Alana. And so you know, there's that much more personal element as well. And uh, as as for Will wanting to be a father, I don't think he was averse to the notion. I also don't think he was particularly uh, gung-ho about it either. But, I mean, we've seen the way that he cares for his his, his dogs We've seen the way he's very clearly he's a nurturer. He's a, you know he's empathetic. That's his thing. He's overly empathetic to the point where it is debilitating at times. So he is able to care for others, uh, and particularly when he doesn't have you know what is it bacterial meningitis or whatever. He, when his brain's not on fire, that certainly helps. Um, and so just in his interactions with Abigail all last season, and then in his mind palace this season, we've seen. I think he would be just fine, you know, when he wasn't being head-shrinked by uh, Hannibal Lecter. All right, let's move on a little bit. Uh, Tyler, last week on the podcast, we were talking about Freddie Lowndes and what was going on there. And I will just go ahead and say, Kate was right, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's as simple as that. Um, and just based on what we get in this episode, I think I still have some reservations about how some of this was executed, but I wanted you to weigh in. Uh, do you feel convinced, cheated, satisfied, something else? Um, about the Freddie Lowndes and the Jack Crawford reveal? Uh, I did not. In fact, I assumed that she was not dead. Um, I, to the extent that I even, 
that like last week and then a good portion of this week just felt like we're just sort of spinning our wheels a little bit and that like the the series is trying to do to us what Will is trying to do to Hannibal and part of me is like stop trying to screw with me here like we all know that Will is not this like I'm fine with the show taking license with these characters but you've now made Will into a psychopathic killer and you're not going to take those kinds of liberties where I started to doubt was when the wheelchair on fire came down and I thought, well, I know what that means. I've seen that before, and I know who, in theory, is in that wheelchair. And so it's like, well, maybe there's, maybe I'm wrong, but somehow it just didn't feel right to me. And so when they finally revealed it, part of me is like, oh, good. Now, and now at the very least, we can uh, stop with this charade that I wasn't buying in the first place. The, the only detail that stood out to me in this episode that I think annoyed me um, and that's excluding the execution last week where I thought that Will, like, physically attacking Freddy after she'd been disarmed was a bit of an issue. Um, but it was... The, the funeral's fine, obviously. That falls into the plan. Like, absolutely do that if you're trying to set the person up. Um, definitely kind of push Alana in the right direction without saying certain things. Definitely try to construct this, this wheelchair thing so that um, there's either fake uh, dental records or whatever it is to convince Hannibal without him actually having to look at it. The one thing that stood out, though, that made me a little bit iffy was uh, Will having a nightmare about that burning wheelchair and the body in it, as if that would suggest that, you know, if he had killed the person, then he that was spilling over into his unconscious and that he was feeling really guilty about it. It's a really minor thing, but whatever. So she's alive. Uh, that yeah. actually is. No, I didn't understand the context of the, the wheelchair Thing. I have Ghost Wheelchair Rider in my notes, and I thought that visually looked awesome. Uh, but I didn't realize that that is a specific lift from the source material. Uh, yeah. But but I have in parentheses, I don't buy it, uh, which I thought was... Uh, uh, because while it was uh, very, very dramatic, it felt, again, like you were saying, Tyler, basically exactly what you were saying. But for me, the fact that he's dreaming about it means that he is is conflicted about it and if he was a crazy killer now he wouldn't be conflicted i think he would have been conflicted if he had actually done it um because he's still in this transitional process but but nonetheless yeah i just felt like i keep referencing other things uh i guess i'm feeling very analogous today um there's a line in uh david mamet's american buffalo in which uh teach says to don Something to the effect of, you know, don't treat me like this. I'm not other people. And that is how I felt towards the show for the last couple episodes in regards specifically to this Freddie Lowndes thing. It's just like, you're re you really are not fooling me. And I'm not saying if somebody was, if somebody did buy it, I'm not saying they're dumb or anything like that. Uh, just that for me, it's like you've done such a great job of showing the inherent decency of Will Graham and he's been laying it on so thick that I just I feel like you're you're telegraphing that this is that this did not actually happen but you're still somehow kind of trying to half-assedly convince me that it did and part of me just thinks like have it be one thing or another either really try to convince me as much as you can or just acknowledge just let me in on it and so that I can revel in, oh boy, they are really starting to entrap Hannibal, which is something that sounds exciting to me. So I don't know, just that everything about it just really, and it was only when the wheelchair showed up and it's because I had a previous context for it. Uh, that was the only time I really started to doubt. And even then I wasn't, uh, I wasn't totally convinced. So it really is one of the only times the show has, I'm not even sure I'd say it was a misstep, but it just it wasn't satisfying to me. It didn't do for me what I what it was trying to do. Having heard that context, I sort of I just love actually sort of the cheek of Brian Fuller to to use that specific imagery. I yeah. kind of I love that little uh, detail there. But I, I was speaking with my sister about it because I watch Hannibal with her when I ha whenever I'm able to because she loves the show as well, and she's more on uh, on your page, Tyler, with this uh, just because there was such tonal whiplash in the performance from Hugh Dancy and the treatment of, of Will's headspace last week. And this week from our very first scene this yeah. week, we're, we're right back to what Will has been and how he, what performance we've seen, I guess, or maybe 
what lens the show is using, we are seeing what he's thinking when he's eating that Orlatan bunting in a way that last week we really weren't. And we heard from, at least I did on Twitter, from a lot of people who believed what the show was was pitching, that, that he had transitioned and he was now this uh, serial killer guy and then we were going to have to try to watch Alana or somebody get him, like bring him back, but that he was truly lost and had become this horrible thing. So I, I apparently there are many people or maybe a, perhaps a vocal minority who it really worked for them and they really were buying the way the show was handling it. But I do see where you're coming from. It was a dramatic, dramatic shift in the perspective of the show. If it's seeing what we, Will wants Hannibal to see or if it's if that's what they're showing us or if what they're showing us is where what Will is really you know, what headspace he's really at. But the thing, and what's interesting is that, and maybe maybe the show is a victim of its own artistic success. Like, they did such a good job of establishing who Will actually is. He might get complicated from time to time. He might get confused from time to time. But at his core, he is this thing, and it has done such a great job of establishing that. Him sending someone to possibly kill Hannibal earlier in the season, I, that I do believe. Because that comes from a place of wanting to help people and wanting to protect people. It's over the line, to be sure, but it still comes from a, a, a misplaced sense of decency. Whereas I so didn't buy it that I found myself wondering, like, I don't, I don't even understand why Hannibal's buying it. If I were Hannibal, I'd be questioning this whole thing. Kate, you mentioned perspective and what we are shown. And I wanted to kind of take that to the technical level and ask about our director, David Slade. And since this is the director who set the tone for Hannibal in its first season, what effects or effects does he have on this episode? Yes, you opened it up for me. So I'm going to ask you the question before you can ask me the question. So we get that scene with Hannibal and Will, and they're talking. And while they're talking, we see their face. I, 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 I was so certain you were going to ask about this. I was like, I watched that scene like five or six times in a row after I finished the episode because I knew I needed to think about it. I have a few thoughts on it, but Sean, that, that, that's the scene that most, there are several scenes that stand out, but that's a big one for me. That's a clear directorial choice. Uh, what do you think David Slade is trying to say there? That's not how this podcast works, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> the um, inmates are running the asylum. <laughs> yes, perfect. Uh, this is actually a technique that I'm really interested in and it's used very often in, in Cinemax's Banshee series. Um, and in that, I think more often than not, the, the overlapping, so we'll have dialogue uh, playing over almost as narration, and what we are seeing is a static, not a static shot, but uh, an image of the character not speaking. So it's, it's disjointed in terms of uh, it's not running consecutively or chronologically, rather. Um, and, and often in Banshee, it's used as a way to project a reality that the, the POV character wishes was true, but is not, in fact. I don't think that that's the case here, and I don't think that's what Slade is doing in this episode. To me, it's, it's a very basic response, I think, um, but it, it might have to do with the layering of the manipulation that each character in this circumstance is enacting. So they are both playing each other, you know, you can talk double agent, triple agent, quadruple agent, whatever. There's so much layering going on that it's it's so hard to keep track on paper, I think, of how careful how carefully these characters need to word certain things that I think that, that spills over visually. Um, and that's what Slade is trying to communicate. Obviously, just one interpretation, but where were you going with that one? Uh, well, what I and where I landed, and I look forward to you know rewatching this episode at some point down the line and probably having a different take on it, uh, was that we were seeing beneath the facades. So I was at first I was wondering if it was this notion of replacement of is Will really speaking about himself or to himself? Is he transposing himself onto Hannibal to? make him projecting himself onto Hannibal to be, how would I say this if I were speaking to myself or all that sort of thing, but where I landed with it. And of course we see both will and then himself and then Hannibal and then himself where I landed on it was that we were seeing their thoughts because they're, like you said, there is such a layering between what they're saying and what they mean and what their in intents and motivations are. So that's sort of where 
I landed on it, despite, you know, it fits with what Will's saying, but his, his look there, his gentle, I mean, it's very, it's very firm. Um, it's, uh, but it's also, it's very selfish. He looks very self-assured, um, but he's also seems like he's like sort of gently leading ahead because Will is, he does eventually coax the closest Hannibal's come to this point to a confession or some sense of culpability out of him when he says that he, sorry, he took, he cost that, you know, that, which I guess you could argue about, but, but took away Abigail. And, and then when we get Hannibal's reaction again, I, I see that's how I was reading it, that we were seeing Hannibal stills is inscrutable. Even, you know, into, we, can't, we can't actually get into his mind. He's just still stone-faced. Uh, Tyler, what did you think of that scene? I really like it from a performance standpoint on the part of uh, Mads Mikkelsen because uh, this is, okay, I mean this in the best possible way. Mads Mikkelsen was, was like almost Jim Carrey level overacting in this, in this episode. Now, of course, I don't literally mean that. I mean that the performance is usually so subdued that the, a slight twitch of the eyebrow or a slight smile and you're like, oh, my gosh, what is going on with this guy? This, <laughs> this tidal wave of emotion. And so we are able to see very palpably uh, his disgust with Mason Verger, his mourning over his sister, and genuine, a genuine fatherly sympathy towards Will. And in that moment, like when he thinks that Will is now like him, to a certain extent, but but that he needs guidance. We suddenly see sort of a kinder, gentler, warmer Hannibal Lecter, and you suddenly get a glimpse into like the people that actually have been broken by him. Like Randall, you're at, you actually see how Hannibal has manipulated these people, and it's because he didn't do it out of a morbid sense of fun or curiosity or experimentation. He genuinely is trying to do something, maybe not positive, but he's trying to give them what they want. He may not like what they want. He may not think it is an inherently good thing, but he is trying to be vaguely paternal. He's trying to take care of them to a certain extent. And so um, so you're able to see... How, uh, my, one of my biggest problems with the Anthony Hopkins Hannibal Lecter all the way back from Silence of the Lambs was I remember Jack Crawford said to Clarice Starling, he said, uh, you don't want to let Hannibal Lecter into your head. And I remember from the word go, as much as I enjoyed Anthony Hopkins' performance, from the word go, when I watched that movie and I heard that warning and then I saw how Hannibal Lecter was, I was like, whoever would let this man in their head? How is this an issue? This man, this man is, he's like a Bond villain. You would never let a... Have you seen the guy? Yeah, like... <laughs> It's like, look at him and then listen to him. Listen to what he says and how he says it. I'd say the mental walls are up pretty, pretty solidly. And so, whereas this Hannibal Lecter, you're able to see, like, he insinuates himself into your head. And then when you start to change, he becomes so much more comforting to you. And you feel like you're doing something right. And I'm... It, it was it revealed so much about Hannibal's method, and I think it was sincere is the other thing. Um, I don't think it was him trying to manipulate. I think he genuinely has a heart for the people that he manipulates. and it's I love that scene. Well, hell, people let Joe Carroll into their heads. Boom, got my following zing for the day. <laughs> it's got to be once a week, right? Um, speaking of getting into the heads, I wanted to bring up an issue that I've, a minor issue, I'll say, that I've been having with watching the season of Hannibal. Um, as many people will know, uh, Brian Fuller does walkthroughs with uh, Todd Vanderwerk from the AV Club, and that, that those go up weekly in addition to the weekly reviews. And as I've been reading them, and specifically Fuller's comments about what he's doing, it's kind of colored my viewing of the shows in certain ways, and it's got me thinking about certain things that I don't necessarily want to be thinking about. So, for instance, in this most recent one, he's talking about this this bird sequence in terms of its sexual connotations. So as we get these close-ups of these two male characters inserting items orally, um, and this isn't necessarily a lens through which I have ever viewed Hannibal, even though there's always been um, those people who have 
latched on to the erotic or the homoerotic undertones, but it, I find it really distracting, and I wanted to get both of your opinions about this, and if you find something like that interesting, interesting or worthwhile to consider. I think it's a very dangerous element, and it's something that can easily cloud the way that you view something. That's why at Sound on Sight, any review that I write, I make sure that I, I watch whatever it is, and I formulate my thoughts. Hopefully, if I'm writing a review, I write a review, and then I read what other people have to say, including the creators, because otherwise you can't help but have it shape how you take a scene, either reacting against the intent of the, the filmmaker or responding to what they said and then all of a sudden seeing new things. And it's great as an element, as a way to get more depth out of a performance or, or a scene or understand what they're going for, but it very much can shape. Uh, if you don't want that influence, it's, it's very hard to shake, I guess. But as far, as far as that, uh, as far as that first scene goes, I, that was just right there for me. That was seemed really obvious. Uh, I don't know that I would take it as a, I mean, there's been a bunch of hoye as far as I'm concerned over the course of the series with all of the the Will and and Hannibal scenes. That that's nothing new for me for the show. Um, but this that sequence was a very sensual one, just in the terms of just not as sex, but as the senses. It was a very you know very specifically filmed scene. Uh, so that that was not something that I was surprised to see or that you know, that marred, you know, my in interpretation of that scene uh, when I when I read the walkthrough. Tyler, what, what do you think? Yeah, uh, Sean, if I were you, I'd stop reading those. Um, it might be too late, but... Uh, it's for too example, late. I, was, uh, I went to click on the AV Club recap of the episode, and then I realized I had accidentally clicked on that thing, and I let out an audible noise. I was like, oh! And then I clicked away from it because I know it sounds weird and this seems somehow counterintuitive, but like I very seldom want to know what a, what a creator or an artist or a director is trying to do or what they're trying to layer on. I might, once the project is over and it's maybe years down the road and I, I know what I think of it and now I'm interested, now that I'm, I'm interested to see what somebody wanted to do, but certainly while it's going on, uh, and certainly with a with a show like this that is just rife with metaphor, and there's just so much stuff that could be up to interpretation. Um, I, and this is something we talk about on Battleship Pretension all the time, and it it sounds egotistical, and maybe it is, but in the end, I'm I am less interested in what in what Brian Fuller was actually trying to do. I'm less interested in hearing about that than I am in hearing what you guys have to say about it or what I think about it. I'm infinitely more interested in what the viewer in how the viewer is, is responding. Um, you know, and that's the thing by like reading these things and we can't help, but now judge it not in how it sits on its own, but how the, how it compares to what the director was trying to do. And I feel like that, uh, that robs us of our our own interpretation. And um, it reminds me of one of the things that has really bothered me over the last couple of years is uh, Vince Gilligan weighing in and saying that the last episode of uh, Breaking Bad was not a dream um, or a fantasy. And I remember reading that and I'm saying, I'm sorry, it's not, it's not in your hands anymore. If you, if you didn't want people to think it was a fantasy sequence, maybe you shouldn't have pandered so much and uh, made it seem like, and had everything fall into place like it does in fantasy. You should have worked harder if you didn't want people to think that. Well, or even just, okay, to you, it's not. Exactly. And that's fine. That's great. Uh, but if, if you didn't want people to have that interpretation, you needed to, if, if you cared you know, that strongly about it not being interpreted in that way, then maybe do something differently. But but I mean I I absolutely agree with you and it's something that I enjoy when it comes up on Battleship Retention, Tyler. You and David talking about this, but yeah, and I absolutely agree. The one's interpretation of 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 art is purely one's own. So just because you know I agree that it's not a fantasy sequence, I enjoy that interpretation. The last uh, episode or the last half of the last episode of Breaking Bad being you know a fantasy sequence, I love that idea. Uh, that was Norm Macdonald, right? 
Uh, yes, among among others. Among others, yeah. I think it's great. I mean, I don't think it's true, but for the people that that is how they choose to read it, I think that's great. That's good, good on them. And I have my own interpretation. And why don't we do, why don't we talk about it? Exactly, as opposed to just having somebody who feels like because they put it together that they own it. And don't get me wrong, I understand that, you know, I'm not saying that the artist doesn't own it to a certain extent, but acting as though they get the definitive word. It's like, I'm sorry, Vince Gilligan, you're going to die eventually. And the show will continue. And in the end, like, the art is going to outlive you. And thus, you don't get the last word. Uh, There's a line in, uh, here we go again, Uh, there's a line in Shadow of the Vampire that I love. Um, in which uh, the Max Shrek character says to the director, he says, this is hardly your picture any longer. Now, of course, the context there is very specific, but that's something that that idea has has gone with me as I approach film and television. And and it sounds argumentative. It isn't. I I want to try to figure out what a filmmaker is trying to do, but I want to try and figure it out with the materials he has provided, not with him just coming out and saying it. See, and I'm good with reading the walkthroughs. I find it interesting, but I mean, maybe that's because I, I see what they're going for. And, and there are times where I'm like, okay, I can see what you're, what, why you're saying that, or that fits with what I was saying, what I saw or what I felt about it. And then I, and there are scenes when I don't see that at all. And, um, and I'm just like, for example, a wonderful example to bring it up on yet a different podcast, Game of Thrones, wonderfully controversial Cersei and Jamie scene a few weeks back. It's like, okay, so what you think you made is one thing, but what you actually made, according to me and apparently the internet, is something completely different. So I don't care what you thought you were making. This is the final product, and this is what this is what I'm seeing, so this is what it means to me. Yeah, I've done enough. To, I've done enough uh, script reading and script consulting out here to know that, like, what people intend is not often what comes across. Um, I've talked. I've talked to people and said, like, "Oh, well, you know, I noticed this in your script and that," and they say, "Oh, that's not what I wanted at all." And then they try to explain to me, "No, no, no, you don't understand. It's this." It's like, "All right, well, none of that is on the page." So I'm sorry. You know, sometimes maybe uh, an artist is too close to their work. And that's okay, um, but it also means that once it once that work is done, there's not much. I, I think you have to be comfortable letting it go and just feeling like, all right, I did what I could. It's the best I could do, and now it belongs to everybody. Death of the author. Freddy Lowndes is still dead. You can't convince me otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm very much in favor of not giving total authorial uh, intent. Wait. So th- this is a really good conversation. I think it one. I think it is one that needs to be had, um, because it, I think it's fascinating how we view television. Not just what the television is that we're analyzing, but the process uh, of intaking it and then building these ideas around it. So we are spilling over a little bit into uh, certain segments, times. So we'll go ahead and move on to the first of which, which is the return of Kate's classical corner. Kate, what can you tell us about the scoring in Ko Namono? Well, I'll keep this quick because we are running long. Uh, the the very notable classical piece featured this week is, of course, Bach's Goldberg Variations. They use the aria. The Goldberg Variations are an aria and 30 variations on that piece composed by Bach. It's uh, It's been used two other times in the course of the series. Here it's used in the opening scene with the Orleton uh, bunting sequence. It was also the first music cue when we met Hannibal. So when he's for, he's first introduced in the pilot and he's eating, that was Box Goldberg variations. It was also used one other time when Hannibal was eating with Tobias. And so that was sort of him sort of testing out Tobias and then he has to choose between is he going to go and be buddies with Tobias or is he going to invest in Will and he chooses Will. So I think having that piece recur for the third time in the series is very a very definite choice it's a lovely piece and so to see it come back here it's you know like we talked about a little bit last week with the with the Mahler we saw earlier in the season um Hannibal eating Beverly uh, accompanied by uh gorgeous but uh haunting cello solo we saw Will and Hannibal air quotes eating Freddie last week, but it was in a lush uh, polyphonic 
arrangement, all strings, but not one solo instrument here. We're back to solo instrument, but it's, you know, now Hannibal has a dinner partner uh, in the way that he hasn't since maybe Tobias. Tobias didn't work out. And then the previous to that, just in the pilot. Also, I think it's interesting that rather than use the variations for these two other times that the pieces come up in the course of the series, they've used the aria each time. So I think that's an interesting choice as well. And uh, we could get into that if we had more time. Also, uh, other elements in the Alana and Hannibal scene, which I'm sure we'll talk about. We, we've got to talk about I don't care if we go along. we got to talk about Alana this week. Um, the, there's the, a very a repeated minor second. Uh, that's a half step uh, back and forth in that sequence underneath, uh, you know, in the middle of, you know, all the scoring there, but that interval is featured prominently. People will know the minor second as the, the interval in the Jaws theme. Uh, so it's a very, it's a minor second. It's the smallest uh, interval you can have without getting into semitones. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's very ominous to me because I always associate it with things like Jaws, but also just being a minor and kind of sad. And there, the rhythm there is also sort of repetitive. So there's an element of building tension in that scene. Uh, when we have uh, the Will and Alana scene at the at the house, uh, they, the scoring there is fun. I, I'm sort of pondering this notion that the percussion in the score that we've heard so prominently this season sort of represents Will. I'm not, that's, uh, you know, that idea is not finished baking, uh, to quote a really unfortunate Buffy reference. Uh, But that's, so that's sort of what I was seeing there. And then that that scene with them and the gun is cello with percussion. So I, I, this notion of if Will's the percussion, then Alana in that scene is the cello, which of course the cello was very prominently tied to Beverly and other of Hannibal's victims earlier in the season. And then in the last scene, when when we get that realization from Alana, again we have cello, but it's distorted because instead of that lovely, beautiful, gorgeous, but melancholy sound when with Beverly with Beverly's demise, or the kind of accompanied sound with uh, with Will earlier, it's this distorted. Uh, just kind of, you know, it shows how devastating this realization is to Beverly. Um, two more things. Uh, of course, Mason compares himself to late Beethoven. Of course he does. Uh, and again, we don't have enough time to, to really dive into that. But many thoughts on that. If there's another Beethoven reference with Mason, I would love to talk more about that. And then I had to mention, because I the song with Mason's martini as he's drinking the tears of children... <laughs> And then later when he is watching his pigs, that is, uh, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but it's by the group Bensuda, uh, Marba Belarsane, okay, I'm just going to spell it, M-A-R-H-B-A, space, B-E-L-A-R-S-S-A-N-E, from the album Moroccan Gypsies, and uh, I, I thought that piece was really notable. I feel like I know it, I don't know why, because it's really it's really hard to find any information about this group online at all uh but they're an african ensemble and um and it's i thought the piece was really great and a completely different tonal sound from anything they've done before and tying in tying in with those you know conversations about shiva and all of that but that was a very notable music cue uh over the course of the episode my musical analysis comes down to there was eastern influenced music in this and i enjoyed it Oh, there was also a clarinet cue that I liked, and that's the first time I've remembered it being used since Chilton. It's very different than that. It's not jazzy like the Chilton uh, scoring was, but it was transitioning into that sequence with uh, the first, I think it's the first sequence with Hannibal and Mason at Hannibal's uh, uh, office. And so that was, I, I was noticing that as well. I thought that was an interesting choice. I will move on to the second of our recurring segments, The Devil in the Details. So any little things that stood out in the episode that we haven't mentioned already, be they visual or otherwise, I want to start off by saying when Margot wakes up from after the accidents and Mason's looking down on her, he definitely looks like a ninja in a red outfit, which I thought was brilliant. So there's that. Uh, also... Some of his line deliveries, Michael Pitt's line de- deliveries, really stood out in this episode. When we come back from a commercial break and Hannibal's trying to talk to him, you just hear Mason mumble a little bit, and he says, no, can't tell that one, as if like he's remembering a story that clearly isn't appropriate to mention around Hannibal. Michael Pitt has just been fantastic in this role so far, so I've really enjoyed that. Uh, Tyler, were there any little details that stood out to you in this episode? 
Uh, well, there was, uh, you mentioned Michael Pitt's performance, which I enjoy, but it, it is more, I'm sure I'm not the first one to say it's more than a little Heath Ledger jokery. Um, other people have mentioned that, I'm sure, right? Yes, yes, that's a okay. common refrain. <laughs> okay, um, which, uh, it doesn't bother me, um, but when he's talking to the kid, I mean, it's rough, but, but when he puts a cap on it with, have a chocolate, just the way <laughs> he does it, like, I laughed out loud and it comes after such a heartbreaking angering scene uh but the way it's just like man there's a reason that i don't there's a reason that like there, there's something to be said for a charming psychopath and uh and that him saying have a chocolate and the way he just kind of casually tosses the chocolate to the kid i thought was uh, was amazing and then i also as he's collecting people's tears just to see the little piece of cotton just absorb the tear uh that was a really nice uh shot kate details or did you want to say something about alana uh yes gotta talk about alana uh quickly some details i i loved that i have that uh have a chocolate thing down in my notes too because that was just wonderful i i love his hair i, I know it's <laughs> i know he's going to 11 i realize it's a ridiculous figure i don't care because it's all it's just hilarious and a wonderful performance from michael pitt it the campiness really works for me, I guess, with that character. I love that in that sequence, in that little scene, he, he like, pats Franklin on the head, and then he looks like he, like, wants to wipe his hand because he's <laughs> touched a child. You know, like, he's like, oh, get the innocence off of me. Um, so I thought that was fun. Uh, Will, his, he's, he's, he's all sweaty and messed up uh, when he's, you know, having that dream about Freddy. That was a very distinct visual tie back to season one for me. When's the, it, that looked like the way that Will was sleeping in the beginning of the series. Uh, was that just me? Have we seen him in that state since all of the, the stuff has gone down this season? We we saw him have sweaty nightmares in his cell, but obviously that's a, a very different location. So uh, I think that this was the most overt callback to the first season, definitely. Okay, um, and then just a, a few more things. I love that Margot doesn't flinch or react to Mason when he's when he like t is touching her hair and stuff because you know that would be an easy choice to make, except that she's been around this guy too long, so it would feel incredibly false if she did because she's used to him being incredibly threatening and creepy, so she shouldn't be flinching at it anymore. And I like that she doesn't. Will scarf at Freddie's funeral is totally a Hannibal kind of look. Uh, the way that Hannibal wears those those big scarfs uh, in Hannibal and Mason's therapy, they're both wearing very similarly to, uh, similar blue shirts. So I thought that was interesting underneath the the various you know vests and all of that. And then uh, we got an email that uh, about the devil in the details last week that I wanted to to share from one of our listeners, Jennifer. If you guys want to reach out and you're not a Twitter person, the Televerse at gmail dot com. Just drop, drop, you can drop me a line there. But uh, last week, uh, she she mentioned that ha uh, Hannibal choked Miriam, he choked Beverly, and last week during the the sex scene, he was there's a lot of imagery of Hannibal uh, uh, touching Alana's neck. We also see Mason grab the uh, Franklin's neck this week, and then the other thing to transition into Alana a little bit, unless there's more devil in the details you guys want to get into. Um, what Jennifer, because I, I spoke with Jennifer a little bit, and she said, uh, asking about what she thought about Alana, um, she says, Alana represents every patient, symphony attendee, etc., who interacted with Hannibal socially or professionally and never would have guessed. But we don't get to hear those people's perspectives, so we get Alana's. Regarding the relationship, Han Hannibal seduces people. He seduced Jack emotionally, Will intellectually, and La Alana in two ways, physically and academically. The fallout will be the carnage of all those types of seduction. So I'm curious what you guys think about that and Alana this week. I was so glad to get more time with her. I think that is uh, your, uh, your listener who chimed in with like uh, the people that Alana represents. I feel like that is pretty spot on, especially in this episode. Like you just see just this, there's something going on inside her mind and you can tell she's, she is not happy with what she knows or what she thinks she knows. She needs to know more, but the more she, there's the, the, the knowledge that the more she finds out, that means the bigger the mistake she has made. 
And so there's almost this desire. It's like, I don't want this to be true because if it is true, then boy, oh boy, am I a terrible judge of character. Uh, but at the same time, she needs to know the truth and she knows something. There's more going on here than she thought. And so uh, good, good performance. Um, I haven't been super thrilled with how they've used the character um, mostly because it's just, but that's the thing. I, I guess technically somebody needs to play that role, which is the person who, who buys Hannibal's thing to the extent that they not only put themselves in the most vulnerable position, which is of course sexually, but then also literally defends him against others. Like he needs, he's somebody who, who works very well with an advocate and Sometimes it's Jack, sometimes, not so much these days, but uh, not at all these days, what am I talking about? But like sometimes it's Will, sometimes it's this person or that person. And right now it's Alana. And the fact that there's a, that that's a sexual relationship really cements that more. And so there are some people who thought that it was uh, kind of crappy that they took this this strong female character and turned her into just like uh, a sexual character to be used as a sort of uh, pawn and I, I don't think so. I think, you know, I don't think it makes her stupid uh, or anything like that because he has fooled everybody at some point. And so um, and the fact that she's willing right now to go where her natural curiosity is taking her, um, I think, makes her a strong character uh, and just affirms that she is a strong, independent character. And so I thought it was really I thought they took her in very good directions uh, this episode. Alana's the teacup. She is yeah, the teacup. Yeah. And she's Absolutely. been put back together. Yeah, it's it's the progression is wonderful. I really loved it over the course of the episode. And just like the more that she knows, the more that she, she knows she has to keep looking and the less she wants to. But that doesn't change anything. She The teacup is already dropping and it's, there's nothing she can do but follow it to its natural conclusion. It's such a gentle coaxing of that character by both Jack and, and Will. We, by Will, it seems at first, and then we know, we have confirmed that it's Jack as well by the end of the episode. And there are so many lovely little directorial choices associated with the character over the course of the episode, from just the the shot selection in that uh that scene with Will and Alana at the house when it's a two shot when it's not. And then in that last scene with Jack, we get handheld camera as she is at her breaking point. We've, I feel like we rarely get handheld in, yeah. in this, in this show. But so it was, it was very noticeable to me, but no, I just, the, the progression over the course of the episode was so subtle. And so it was just so completely inevitable and I loved the handle. I wish they had given her anything interesting to do for the rest of the season. But in this episode, I loved the performance, the writing, the direction, the use of the character, all of it. Um, I wanted to run something by you guys. And it's just uh, it's something that nags at me a little bit. And it's the character of Mason Verger. I enjoy the performance. I enjoy the look of him. Um, one thing that I thought of and, and didn't mention is like, when he's at the uh, therapy session with Hannibal, he's dressed in a like kind of a, a stunning white suit, which of course contrasts with the blood red scrubs that he's in, um, which I thought was interesting. But I feel like this is a show that does not judge people uh, wisely, I think. Uh, I mean, we see characters who kill that, like scores of people, and the show condemns their actions but seems to have a certain degree of heart for them and seeing and realizing, man, how, how broken can people be that they think this is the only way that they can express their desires? How horrible is that? And it, it has a heart for Hannibal. It had a heart for, uh, you know, for Randall and just any number of these killers doesn't seem to have one for Mason. Really? Uh, he, it seems like whatever, uh, Whatever judgment and animosity the show might have had for the first two seasons, it's just been compounding and storing up, and now it's all being put onto this one character. And I find myself, and I recognize that his crimes are against children and against his own sister and all that sort of thing, so they are particularly terrible. But what I will say is that, like, what is it? Why do you think the show has saved this level of contempt? 
for this character? Like, and do you think that we might, as the show continues, we might get hints of humanity and hints that maybe he was a little screwed up by his father uh, as as well? Like, do you think we'll get any of that, or do you think the show is is content to just be like, here is our villain, and wh- and we all know what's coming for him, and we are we're go- we're going to be thrilled when it happens? Your guys' think- thoughts. I think it's precisely the latter, and I and that's what I like about it. I think what you've said about previous killers being humanized to a certain extent, I think has definitely worked. I was just rewatching the the episode with Amanda Plummer earlier today, and they gave her that really interesting speech about her perspective in terms of what she does. But I like having a villain for Hannibal. It it seems almost out of place given the kind of series that Fuller has crafted thus far but it adds a different element of entertainment for me, and it works really well just because they play him like a supervillain, and and I can buy into that. Well, and also, he he's a monster, and he's, I, we assume, killed people, uh, but he is not a tableau murderer the way that every other villain we've seen, every other person that the show has presented has been and then we've seen will go to their crime scene and empathize with them and that's not the role mason has in the show he hasn't done that will hasn't put himself into mason's shoes so i think there's that element as well as long as as well as you know just it's fun to have a villain and isn't it you know and, and also with you very much get the sense with hannibal you don't mess with kids he handles got a thing about kids Right. Uh, and and Mason breaks that rule uh, that Hannibal has, and so then it seems the show has also for a show that has so much hor- horrific, violent death, we've gotten very little assault, and so I think there's that element as well. Uh, so so those are two kind of different things with Mason as compared to the other killers, and then it just again like we haven't seen Will put himself into Mason's shoes that's not you know he's not a case of the week he's something different and so i think maybe that's why the show is comfortable passing judgment on this particular monster when it's not interested in passing judgment on on most it presents what they do as horrible and horrific and incomprehensible even some of them others Mm -hmm. less so but that's not what mason is in the show it's not his role well, and I guess that's something that actually kind of frustrates me. And it, I know it's weird because, I mean, I enjoy a good villain and somebody to root against as much as anybody else. I mean, that's the reason that uh, it's a rather unpopular opinion. But season three of Deadwood is my favorite of those because everyone's working against George Hurst and he is just a bastard, albeit one who occasionally has flashes of humanity. And and I think that's, like, I'm fine with, with the show condemning Mason's actions and his attitude and basically acknowledging that the world will be better without him. But I, at the very least, I'm curious to know how he got this way, because there's clearly something. He is a clearly damaged person. Now, he might be more of a predator than a victim at this point. But what what must have happened to make him this way? And I, I at least want something there. And I think you can do that without excusing him. Or having him be an effective villain. Um, and it just seems like, it seems, certainly I understand the idea. It's like, you don't screw with kids. It's like, yes, but at the same time, when your patients come to you, Dr. Lecter, they are innocent and trusting and they want help. They want your help. And you, admittedly, Lecter thinks he's helping them to a certain extent. But like, in that way, like the thing about kids is they're innocent and trusting. Well, that's exactly what a, what a, a patient is. They're vulnerable, they're trusting, and so they may be adults, but they're putting themselves in your hands the way children do with adults. And so for for Lecter to be particularly angry about this thing, and then, yes, I recognize Hannibal has problems. You know, he was very protective of his own sister, and then now he sees Mason, who's actually quite predatory towards his own sister, and I'm sure he gets mad at that. I'm sure he draws parallels there, but part of me is like, so you're telling me that if Mason was going after his cousin, would you have would you be more okay with it or 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 what? So I know it's weird, and I'm sure I I think the show is is curious enough that they might delve into Mason a little bit as the show goes on. But I just wanted to get your guys' take on it because this is it's a weird thing for some reason. 
I like seeing the dark side of heroes and the and the the light side of of villains. Uh, and I think to acknowledge those sides doesn't negate that they are heroes or villains primarily. So. Uh, and I think the show has done a really good job of balancing that with everybody so far, except Mason. And so, uh, but maybe that's, maybe that's okay. They've done such a good job with all the other characters. Maybe once in a while, there's just a bastard out there who needs to be taken care of. In the words of somebody wiser than myself, we'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> Drink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll have to wrap it up there. Just a couple of things before we sign off. I think... Uh, we all are very happy to hear that Hannibal has been renewed for a third season. So congratulations to Brian Fuller and his team. This will be the longest-running uh, original programming series for Brian Fuller, which is very exciting. And hopefully that means that, barring getting murdered and eaten, Kate and I will be back next year to do more of this podcast. Woohoo! <laughs> um, also, listeners have something a little bit special to look forward to next week. I am not going to spoil anything, but it will be a... A slight departure from the usual this is our design so look forward to that uh and again thank you tyler for coming on to the podcast and talking with us it's been very good where can our listeners find you online well i host two different podcasts i host uh i co-host battleship pretension with uh, david Bax, who i believe was on last week and so um and that's just a general movie discussion show um and then i also uh co-host a show called more than one lesson which, uh, admittedly, I should tell. I, I like to tell people this from the outset in case they come into it thinking it's something else. Uh, it is film discussion, but it is from an overtly Christian point of view, and so uh, we do. We're not interested in like how many cuss words a movie has or anything like that, uh, but we are interested in like spiritual themes that a movie may have, whether the uh, filmmaker intended that or not. And Kate, where can listeners find you online? They can find me at Sound On Sight, reviewing, uh, well, as of recording, there's a new Orphan Black going out tonight, and my review of that will be up right away. Very much enjoying reviewing that for Sound On Sight. Also, Grim, uh, you can hear me on the Sound On Sight uh, Game of Thrones podcast that goes out every week, and, of course, on the Televerse, uh, where Sean and I discuss the week's television, every all the other shows, because there are so many right now. Uh, that goes up on Tuesday, so you can check check me out there. Also, if you are following Veep, I'm reviewing that over at the AV Club, uh, so you can find me there as well, as well as theteleverse at gmail.com if you want to send an email, or at the Televerse on Twitter. I always love speaking with you guys, so so drop us a line there. And again, if you're not a Twitter person, like Jennifer said she was not a Twitter person, um, she was looking for another way to... to talk with us you can you can talk with us on facebook you uh, on the televerse facebook page you can talk with us at sound on site leave a comment on the post for for that we we love discussing this stuff with you guys so please do not be shy not at all uh you can find my work online at tvobermind.com which is where i review hannibal and a couple other things and of course the rest of it at soundonsite.org uh, my twitter handle is just at my name at sean coletti and as kate mentioned we i do help post the televerse as well but that is it for this week again please be on the lookout for the next podcast when that goes out um but thank you listeners for tuning in this has been another episode of this is our design <laughs>